We're in First John, and we started on chapter 2 last week. Where we got is to chapter 2, verse 6. And what we were talking about last time is the idea of keeping commandments. And one of the things that I mentioned is it is what I believe an error, of not all of it, much of the Sunday church, that they believe that the Torah has been done away with and is no longer binding on Christians. Certainly not everybody believes that, but it's common enough that they're canard fits. And I read this part of 1 John, and I don't see how you can say that, because the first thing he says is, in verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And as I said last time, the common response to that is that they're keeping the commandments of Yeshua, not the commandments of Moses, and that there is somehow some essential difference between those. There are people in the Sunday church who say, I love God and I love my neighbor and that's all I need to do and so I'm, I'm good. And certainly that's a good start. But if you then go on to verse 6, and whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And of course, even the Sunday church will acknowledge that during his time walking on the earth, Yeshua kept the Torah. I don't think that's controversial even among the Sunday church. I think everybody agrees with that. Uh, people will say he ran afoul of the Pharisees for not keeping Torah, and what he was not keeping was oral Torah. The oral Torah is the emendations to Moses made by the rabbis. And there isn't anything fundamentally wrong with oral Torah as long as you recognize which parts are given by God through Moses and which parts are added as traditions of men, if you will, by the rabbis. Some of those traditions of men are perfectly good advice, but they are not binding as scripture and violating them is not sin. So where Yeshua got crosswise of the Pharisees was they were regarding their emendations to the Torah, the oral Torah, as in fact being binding. And Yeshua said, no, they're not binding. And in fact, some of your oral traditions contradict written Torah, and you make the Torah of no effect by your traditions. So coming back full circle to where I started, the idea is Yeshua walked according to the law of Moses as given by Moses, so what John is saying here is if you're going to follow Yeshua and you're going to say you know him, you ought to walk the same way he did, which is to say, as best you can, you ought to walk in Torah. Now, one other thing while we're on the subject, there are lots and lots of things in Torah that do not apply. There are things that don't apply to me because I'm not a woman. There are other things that don't apply to me because I'm not a priest. There are things that do not apply to my wife because she's not a man. So the idea of keeping the Torah, quote unquote, is not always cut and dried. And there are other things that have to do with keeping the Torah that depend on there being a temple and depend on being in the land. There's all sorts of things that are written in Torah that we can no longer keep when we're in exile and we have different roles, if you will. But within those constraints, I read this as you ought to keep the law of Moses. And there's nothing about the law of Moses has been abrogated. Now, as we go into verse 7, he will reinforce that. So now down to verse 7 in 1 John 2. Beloved, 
I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. All right, now stop right there. So the first thing he's saying is the stuff that I'm writing to you is nothing new. And I interpret that as the law of Moses. In other words, you know what Moses said. Now, having said that, I've got to do a caveat because we're not really sure who the letter's written to. For example, Paul has the Gentile franchise. So when Paul writes letters, he does not assume that his recipients understand Torah. Peter and James are writing to Hebrews either in the land or in the diaspora. And when they write, they assume that their audience does understand Moses. Not really entirely clear what's going on with John here. And he could be writing to Gentiles in the spirit of Paul, or he could be writing to Hebrews in the spirit of James and Peter. Just don't know right offhand. I am assuming that what he's talking about in verse 7, however, is Torah. When he says, I'm not giving you anything new. That would seem to me to refer to Torah. Then verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So what I interpret that to mean is, okay, you all got the written Torah, so I'm not telling you anything new. However, the life and sacrifice of Yeshua changes some stuff. And so the things that were written in the Torah now become new. Because you remember, for example, much of the Sunday church believes that they are living under the new covenant. And as I read the new covenant, there is nothing in the new covenant that deals with Gentiles. It's a covenant with Israel and Judah. The new covenant is a Torah concept. It is first given in Deuteronomy. And then it's given in Jeremiah, and it's given in Ezekiel, and it's given in uh, Isaiah. And then finally it's repeated in the book of Hebrews, which is where most Christians fetch up against it. Those that pay attention also realize that the Hebrews is simply a quotation of the Jeremiah version of the New Covenant. So what I'm interpreting verse 8 to be is Yeshua's death and resurrection doesn't change the terms, but it renews or makes new the Torah. So he's saying, I'm not giving you a new commandment. This is an old commandment, but it's a new commandment. Well, the same thing can't be old and new except in relation to the sacrifice of Yeshua. That's the thing that is different, if you will, between our understanding of the Torah under Yeshua and our understanding of the Torah before Yeshua. Because you remember under the Torah, there is no sacrifice for willful sin. So if you become wicked and you sin intentionally, there is no sacrifice under Torah that handles that, period. With Yeshua, you now do have a sacrifice that handles willful sin. So in that sense, then, the Torah becomes new to us because there is, if you will, a way to handle repentance and willful sin. Back to verse 8 again. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passed away and the true light is already shining. 
And again, we talked about that in relation to John chapter 1, where John refers to Yeshua as the light of the world. What we're seeing here then is the light having come into the world makes the Torah new. At the Last Supper, Yeshua said, as he took the cup, this is the new covenant in uh, my blood. And what he is saying there is that a covenant, in order to be ratified, requires the shedding of blood. His blood is going to be the blood that ratifies the new covenant. He is going to be the sacrificial victim, if you will, that is going to result in the new covenant being cut. New covenant being an Old Testament concept. What has happened is the new covenant has been cut, which is to say the sacrificial victim's blood has been shed. However, all of the terms of the new covenant are not yet enforced. So, for example, when Abraham cut the covenant with God, cut the animals and went between them and so forth, the covenant promised him land and progeny. It was decades before all of that came to pass in him, and furthermore, it is continuing to come to pass in his progeny. The covenant's terms did not all of a sudden go plop and land in his lap like a brick of concrete. It was something that once the covenant was cut, then there was a progressive fulfillment of it, if you will. Same thing with the new covenant. The covenant was cut and the blood was shed at the cross, but we are waiting now for the terms to be fulfilled. And the terms are Israel and Judah reunited and in the land. It has not happened yet. But that covenant has been cut, the blood has been shed, it's a done deal, but we are still seeing the outworking of the conditions of that covenant which have not yet completely come into effect. And the example that Ray came up with, which I think is a really good example, is when you buy a piece of real estate, you have a signing of the contract. But you do not take possession of the land until some time later when you come to the closing. There's a gap of time between the signing of the contract and coming into possession of the real estate. We are in that gap right now. The contract has been signed, the blood has been shed, but there is now an interim interval while we are waiting for possession of the things promised in the covenant. So, we are all the way down to 1 John 2.10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. And by the way, my translation has a note here. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in it there is no cause for stumbling is also a legitimate translation. So you could look at as in the light there's no cause for stumbling, or in the one who is walking in the light, is not going to stumble. You can see that either way. Going back to the previous discussion, the new covenant has Ephraim and Judah reunited and back in the land. Those are the terms of the new covenant. When the new covenant kicks in, that is going to happen. Now, look at what we just read in 1 John in that light. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So, what brothers are we talking about? Are we talking about Ephraim and Judah here? Or are we talking about within a congregation, your brothers and sisters in Messiah? And I'd always thought of it in the Sunday Christian term, which is we're talking about fellowship within the body of Christ. 
but since we don't know for sure who the addressees of the letter are, it could also easily be Ephraim and Judah. The thing that occurs to me is it appears at the time of James, James 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Yeshua Messiah, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So he is specifically writing it to Israel and Judah in the dispersion. Now, what that says to my lightning-fast mind is they knew where the dispersion was and they knew where the tribes were who had been scattered under the Assyrian invasion some 500 years before. If James is addressing it to the 12 tribes, he specifically says 12 tribes, he does not say Judah or Levi or anything like that. He addresses all 12 tribes. And I may be really wrong here, I just don't know. And if I take it as James recognizes where the 12 tribes were, I don't see any reason why John wouldn't either. And so the idea then that he's saying you need to love your brother could very well be addressed to Judah and Ephraim. We talked about last week how expensive it was to write and distribute a letter at that time. They didn't have email and they didn't have word processors. And so now that the covenant has been cut and the blood of the victim has been shed, it becomes really important for us to get together as Israel and Judah and come back together so that the rest of the covenant can kick in. So again, verse 9, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I don't have any problem with that being homiletic advice within a church body, but I had not thought of that in terms of being national advice in terms of Judah and Ephraim. And we don't know for sure who the addressees of the letter are, so we can't nail that down definitively. So now we're going to go into 12, 13, and 14, which is a little poetic section. And what it is is a series of mashalim. And you all remember mashalim. A mashal is a unit of Eastern wisdom, usually in couplets, and usually set up so that they are easily remembered and memorized and set up so that they will engender discussion. It's a very compact way of encoding knowledge. And we're going to talk about children, fathers, and young men. Now, my particular perspective is he is addressing people, the same people, and he's calling them children, he's calling them fathers, and he's calling them young men. I don't see, this is the advice for the little kids, this is the advice for the fathers, and this is the advice for young men. This is a poetic device, if you will. The whole thing is aimed at everybody. Little children first. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. One of the things that is said in several places, and in fact I think it's said in this letter, is that the death and burial and resurrection of Yeshua is for the sins of the whole world. 
It doesn't say that it's just for the sins of the Jews. It doesn't say it's just for the sins of the church. It says that everybody's sins are forgiven. I read that as everybody has forgiveness. And the question then becomes, do you accept that gift? And accepting that gift, do you then change your walk? It's still possible for those who are forgiven to continue to be wicked. So first one is little children. As children, your sins are forgiven for his namesake. And this is something that is given to them as a gift. So this is something that a child does not have to earn. It's a gift given to a child simply because he is a child of the Father. There's no works involved or anything like that. The gift of forgiveness is simply given because you're a member of the family, because Father loves you. Then verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And again, I am seeing the fathers then being responsible for educating the family, leading and educating the family. So little children, you can walk free now because your sins are forgiven. Fathers, it's going to be your job to teach and lead the family. And then I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And what is the characteristic of young men? That's when they make good warriors. There's a reason that you have 18-year-olds as warriors. They're full of enthusiasm and they're not very smart yet. So they make wonderful warriors. As they get older, they sort of back up and become more cautious. The way the army is organized is you have squads, which are six or seven or eight young men, anywhere from 18 years old to about 22 or 23. And for those of you who have read the book of Proverbs, which is all of us, you realize that young men that age don't have a lot of sense. They got a lot of courage, they got a lot of strength, they got a lot of vigor, but they don't have a lot of sense. So every squad has got a sergeant over it, and the sergeant is usually about 35 or 40, by which time you expect him to have some sense. So every little pod of these young men who are all full of pea and vinegar has got a 40-year-old guy over the top of them, keeping them sane and sitting on them. And then, of course, over that, you've got officers and NCOs that are in their late 30s and 40s and 50s, by which time you hope that they have some wisdom. So as he's talking here, you've got little children, you've got fathers, and then you've got young men. And the idea of the young men is they have overcome the evil one, which is to say this is a fighting age. But you've got the fathers who are over them that give them some sense of direction and some stability. And then again, I write to you children because you know the Father. In other words, you know whose family you're in. Remember, you've been given the gift of forgiveness, and you know the Father, and the Father, remember, is responsible for leading the family and teaching. I write to you fathers because you know him who was from the beginning, which is exactly what was said before. So the fathers are stable. They don't change in what the fathers do. It's the same in both stanzas. And then I write to you young men because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So again, this is a combat, if you will. This is when they make good soldiers. As I say, I see this not as directed at age groups, but directed at all of us from different perspectives. As children of God, we have forgiveness, and we know the Father. 
those of us who are mature as fathers know the father and we're responsible for guiding and teaching and organizing the family. As young men, we are all responsible for going out and contending with the world for the Word of God. One of the things that I have not said for a long time, but I should say again because it's a good time to say it, whenever you see triplets in Scripture, you ought to think of the Trinity. So here you have got triplets. You've got the Son, you've got the Father, and you've got the strength. And what's the strength of God? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the power source of God, if you will. The Father is the stability, and then the Son is the beloved. The Son is the child, the young men are the Spirit. So you've got Son, Father, Spirit. All right, now, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So, let's go to Genesis 3, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Go back to John. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions are the pride in life. Isn't that what we're talking about in Genesis 3? That's exactly how the serpent tempted Eve. You've got the desires of the flesh. You've got the desires of the eyes. She looked and saw that it was good for food. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the light to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So what the serpent is doing in Genesis 3 is tempting Eve in the same way that John is warning against in 1 John. Obviously what John says in 1 John is that the world itself is passing away. and He's the guy that wrote Revelation, right? And he talks about the world passing away and a new Jerusalem and a new heaven and a new earth and all that kind of stuff. So this is the same guy that wrote Revelation and he is Iterating here, and I don't know which was written first, this or Revelation, but the point is this world is passing away and it will be gone when it has served its purpose. So don't get attached to the stuff of the world. Attached to the things that are eternal. So we're back in First John, and I'm all the way down to verse 18. Children. Now, children, by the way, here is not the same as little children up above in the mashalim. Now he's addressing all of his audience as children. For example, a Catholic priest would address you as my child or my son. Term of address from teacher to a student, if you will. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that this is the last hour. As we said earlier, the last hour has lasted now for 2,000 years. My view of end times, and there's nothing doctrinal or dogmatic about this. If you have a different view, we can all do lunch. It's okay. I believe we are between the fourth and the sixth seal in Revelation. 
I believe that as Yeshua got up and took his seat at the right hand of God, he started opening seals. So you have wars and famine and disease and all that kind of stuff that is brought in the world. The fifth seal is the saints under the altar. That's in heaven and is not visible here. The sixth seal is not going to be subtle at all. And we have not arrived there, so I believe that we are in the time of the first four seals. The fifth one may or may not have been opened, but we are waiting down here for the sixth. And as I say, there are other views of end times, and if you have a different view, that's fine. So, what he's saying then is we are in the last hour, which I am taking to mean that he agrees with me, of course, or I agree with him, since he's more authoritative, that the seals are in the process of being opened, and that the end times have started to unroll. That's what I take him to mean. So, therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. We talked about this last time. One of the things that Paul has problems with, uh, and is the subject of the book of Galatians, is people coming from Jerusalem who are of the circumcision party. They go to the Gentile churches that Paul has established, and they sow confusion by saying, yeah, 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 we know what this guy Paul taught you, but we're from Jerusalem, and we know what's going on. In order to be saved, you've got to be circumcised. So Paul has to backfill and write back to this church to correct the confusion that has been caused by people who came from the church in Jerusalem, Messianic Jews who believe that circumcision is necessary. I believe John is doing the same thing. And what he's saying is there are people that have gone out from us. I'm assuming from us means the mother church in Jerusalem. And we already know that there are factions in that church. So what I'm assuming here is there are people who have gone out, Jews or Messianic Jews, who are casting doubt on what John and Paul and Peter have been teaching in the diaspora. That's what I think he's talking about. So he's saying, since the last time I talked to you, You've had these people that have shown up and they are sowing confusion among you. They came from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have stayed with us, but they have gone out and they are sowing confusion. Verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Yeshua is the Messiah? He is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Now, this is potentially confusing, and I may be the one who's confused. Perfectly willing to admit that. First off, you have people who have come out denying Yeshua is the Messiah. Well, that's all of Orthodox Judaism. They are denying that Yeshua is the Messiah. So we could be talking about Orthodox Jews who are going out in the Mediterranean basin saying that this guy Yeshua is not in fact the Messiah, and this sect, the way, those who follow this guy Yeshua are heretics. That's what Paul was doing before he got knocked off his ass on the road to Damascus. So that could be what we're talking about. But this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Now, an Orthodox Jew would not deny the Father. He would deny the Son, but not the Father. So this may be some other heresy entirely. 
Now, he's going to go on in a minute and say that anybody who denies the Son also denies the Father. So in that sense, he could be talking about Orthodox Jews. In other words, what he's saying is, hey, if you don't believe Yeshua is the Messiah, not only deny him, but you don't got the Father either. That could be what he's talking about, entirely possible. Verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. So what he would be saying that is an Orthodox Jew who doesn't believe Yeshua is the Messiah also doesn't have the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So no one who denies the Son has the Father, but what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father, and this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. So what he's saying is the Father and the Son comes a package deal. Now, we don't know for sure what the heresy was that was being shopped around, but we know that it had to do with denying Yeshua as the Messiah. We said at the beginning of this study that there are sort of three views of who Yeshua is. View number one is that he is a manifestation of God like an angel, supernatural being that shows up all over the Bible. And they show up and they look just like men and they walk around and they do all sorts of stuff just like men. But they're in fact spiritual beings, angels, and they disappear up into the overhead. And then the second one is Yeshua is just a man who is anointed by God. And then in the middle is where I am and where Orthodox Christianity is. He is, in fact, truly the Son of God, fully a man and fully God. And the problem with that is it echoes all of the mystery religions, Babylon, Egypt, Greece, Rome, all have legends where a god dies, goes down to the underworld, is raised from the dead, and comes back to life. So from a Jew's perspective, for us to say that says, oh, that just looks exactly like a Babylonian mystery religion. I mean, you're no different than those who worship you know, Isis and so forth. Everything's the same. So you just got to decide what you believe. And what I've decided I believe is that he is man and he's God. And the reason I believe that is because it's the only thing that makes any sense from the perspective of retaking the earth. Because dominion was given over the earth to man. So in order for the Messiah to take dominion, he has to be a man because that's who God gave dominion to. In order for his sacrifice to be efficacious, he's got to be without sin, which means that he's got to be born of the seed of God instead of of the seed of Adam. So in order for all that to work, the only thing that makes sense to me is that he is born of a woman, which means he's fully human, that the seed that was given to the woman is from God, which means it's not tainted with Adam. So he's now fully human and fully divine, which means that he is qualified to forgive sins and he's also qualified to take dominion. The only reason all that works is if he's both. If he's either one or the other, then a whole bunch of stuff no longer works. So let's stop it at verse 25, which is, and this is the promise that he had made to us, eternal life. And then we'll pick it up because remember, John is the apostle who writes the most about the Holy Spirit. So now he's going to go into Holy Spirit stuff, and that's going to take some unpacking as opposed to just reading it and letting it lie there. 